Pocket Law Talks. This is your host, Brad. Uh, again, we have Adam. Hello. And producer Devin. Hey. This time we're doing something a little bit different we haven't done before. We have a special guest with us, which is really exciting for us. Uh, so we'll go ahead and in- introduce Dr. Coli. Hello, Dr. Coli. Hi, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, guys. Today we're doing, I think, what will be a really, really interesting episode called The Psychology of the Criminal Mind. So we're going to dive into a little bit what causes and what the root nature is of uh, somebody that engages in criminal behavior. Uh, And so we brought an expert along to discuss that. Um, Dr. Cole, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself to our audience. Um, I have a bachelor's degree from The Ohio State University and a master's and a doctoral degree from Pepperdine University. Um, I've worked in Indiana for about 21 years. Uh, I've primarily worked in residential treatment with children and adolescents and families involved with the court system. Um, up until about seven years ago when I went into private practice. I also had a year in special education and a year working at the Department of Corrections at Pendleton Juvenile Correctional Facility. So you were a narc? Uh, No, that's not what I (laughs) called it. Oh, boy. I I helped the That's what producer Devin calls everyone that works for the government. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you put people in jail, so you're like... We get people out of jail. Well, old old times. He spent at least half his career putting people in jail, so he's like at least 50% a cocksucker. About half. It was about... Yeah, it's been about half. Over half now that you've been on the defense side. That's right. That's right. How about that? Well, tell us a little bit about what you've done in terms of working with individuals that... Without specific details, but what what you do or how you get involved with the courts and the criminal justice process. Okay, sure. Um, I take clients for psychological evaluations that are either court-ordered by the judge um, to come see me for an insanity or competency evaluation. I also do a lot of sentencing evaluations for attorneys um, and different kinds of forensic evaluations depending upon the question. I do trial rule 35 evaluations, child hearsay evaluations for DCS, and other psychological evaluations for DCS. And I also see a lot of clients in my office who are involved with the criminal justice system um, for different reasons, um, child uh, child molest cases, um, all kinds of different things. So um, it, I have a big range of clients that I see, including just regular clients off the street, children, adolescents, adults. So it's fun. I get to do a lot of different things. I want to dive into the psychology of the criminal mind a little bit. Obviously, uh, you know, parents uh, have a newborn baby. It's most exciting time of their life. They're kicking, screaming, uh, trying to figure out what in the world to do with them, keep them, keep them alive and their diapers dry and keeping them fed. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I mean, babies aren't born criminals, are they? No. Okay. I don't think they'd be born normal citizens either though. Do you think? What do you mean? Like born knowing and following the laws. Cause I mean, how would they know? You're saying born neutral. Yeah. I think they'd be born pretty neutral when you think. Yes, I agree. So it's kind of a clean slate. Yes. Okay. What is what goes into or what are the risk factors that um, takes that clean slate and maybe drives it in the wrong direction? Well, I think that the problems can sometimes start before birth because a lot of parents are using drugs while they're pregnant. There's uh, trauma that happens uh, in utero. Uh, there can be domestic violence going on. And a lot of that can impact the child's neurodevelopment. Um, in addition, once they're born, there are a lot of factors that can take place. Attachment is a big one of those things. Um, And that comes up a lot with the clients that we see. 
um, attachment is the period of bonding between the parent and the and the baby. That's after birth, right? Yes. And a lot of things can impact that, whether it's the mother's depression or just the inability to attach to a child. But if the attachment period, which can last the first two years, isn't complete or thorough, then that child can develop problems um, feeling empathy for other people, um, seeing other people as having emotions and feelings, and it can cause a lot of problems for their willingness to follow the rules of society later on. Do you think if a baby or if a mother is depressed like the whole time that she's going through that attachment phase, if that alone, even if she's like trying her best, but obviously if you're depressed, you're going to be lacking in some areas just because, you know, you're mentally unwell. Do you think that would transfer onto the baby too? Like if it can kind of just pick that up? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And is this, is this attachment thing, is that all mother-child or is there a component to that that's father-child as well? Yes, it just has to be a caregiver. It doesn't have to be the mother per, per se. Originally, psychology thought it had to do more with the one nursing the child, but it really can be the father as well. But there has to be one stable caregiver, and a lot of our um, clients have been in foster care or removed from multiple people or there's been a lot of instability in those first two years, and that can cause a real problem because if the child doesn't have at least one stable caregiver during that period of time, then they can develop a lot of problems with empathy and um, caring for other people. Are there also genetics that play a role? Um, for which part of like it? For genes or being predisposed to mental health issues? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So uh, the the fact of being predisposed to like mental health issues or developing mental health issues due to having multiple caretakers, is there like you know, a, a loose formula or just an obvious sign of like the amount of caregivers that they have in that short span of time increases the rate? I don't know if there's effects. a formula for that, but um, it was first um, understood with the orphanages overseas where there were lots of children, babies in orphanages, and there weren't enough caregivers or enough nurses to take care of all those babies. So they only basically had time to feed each baby and change their diapers before moving sure. to the next one. So the babies started developing these atypical behaviors like banging their head and biting themselves and all of these things, and they realized that without that caregiver that there was a real problem with their neurodevelopment. I mean... The stimulation you get from a parent looking in your eyes and care, you know, sure. caring for you and helping you learn to regulate your affect really has long-lasting impacts on the person's uh, personality and development. You said your affect? What is that? Yes. So your emotions. So uh, everybody, a, a normal, typically developing person has high emotions, like positive emotions, joy, all the way down to the depths of the depression. And they have a full range of emotions. But if you haven't had... Um, positive caregiving experiences where somebody's help, able to give you that joy or that feeling of contentment and help to stabilize your emotions, then that can be a problem for you later when you can't regulate your own emotions. So as we're talking about the differences and the impact it can have, whether somebody's being, this is sort of the nature versus nurture thing, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, so I, I assume that's why if a baby is adopted at birth immediately and has a... Uh, an adoptive parent that is filling that role, that's sort of the ideal situation if, if the, the birth parent isn't going to be able to provide that type of care. Yes, and that's the, that's the key there. Because sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes even the adoptive parents have problems bonding with the child. Sure, absolutely. And so, not to get too, too far into this, this one issue, but if a mother, for example, is going through severe postpartum depression, I mean, I assume that could have some negative impacts. Yes, it can definitely have impact, um, as well as wanting to go pick up the baby, uh, becoming overwhelmed when the baby cries, um, being able to uh, provide that basic nurturance when they feel overwhelmed. You'd also talked about um, domestic 
you know, issues and such when the baby is in utero. Um, does the baby, like, pick up on the adrenaline that flows through the mom, like, say, when she's in a big argument or if, you know, they start hitting each other? There is some research that there's uh, the, the adrenaline and the, uh, the anxiety and the stress that the mother's gone through can impact the baby neurodevelopmentally. Isn't that called epigenetics? Oh, that sounded like a fancy word. Yeah. yeah, I think epigenetics is when it's not just passed as part of the, you know, creation of the child. It, it passes also, their genes can change directly from their parents after they're born. That's epigenetics. Hmm. Don't know anything about that. Interesting. Look, I mean, when you're this smart, it, it's a it's a burden. It's a burden to carry. Yeah, all those dad jokes yeah. just weighing your brain down. Yeah, it just weighs it down. That's why I let them out. If you let them out, you just continue to get smarter. You have so many, yeah. so much. You have to let there, there has to be a release. Epigenetics. So, what are what are some of the, the long term ramifications that a kid can have if they if they're not having that appropriate attachment, the parents not playing that active role in their life uh, in those early stages? What are some of the long term impacts you can see that would be negative in terms of a child that might develop? Uh, or lead into some of that criminalistic behavior. Well, one of the one of the worst uh, diagnoses is reactive attachment disorder, which is what we're, kind of what we're talking about, where there's that failure to attach, and then you develop this inability to be empathic towards other people, and uh, you start to, um, and sometimes you start to act out in a violent manner towards uh, people who try to show you caring, or people you should care about, like your family members. And so you'll see a child who becomes violent towards siblings. Um, potentially tries to kill siblings in the home, kills animals. I know uh, there's lots of uh, really bad things that can start to happen. And depending upon how the parents handle that, when those symptoms start to come about, uh, can play a a real impact on whether the person is able to recover from that. But the problem is once you start to, the kids start to have these acting out behaviors in such a violent way, it's really hard to address that. It's really hard to fix that attachment. And and some people would argue that you can't fix that attachment. Yeah, isn't there, like, plenty of serial killers who come from what seems really normal and mundane families? Well, that's a good question because, you know, we're hearing about that retrospectively, and a lot of those families will pretend that they were a of normal course. family. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, and then then what do you say about that? So I, I don't know. It's, it's an we interesting question. We loved them question. a lot. We, we coddled them all the time. Well, and, and when you're talking about the very early stages, the first two years, there's going to be – really no effective way to know that the child's not going to remember those years. Not necessarily, no. But there's a lot of subtle... Um, like subconscious ways that they remember it? Well, parenting that goes along, like come close to me, get away from me, um, dynamics that uh, between the child and that they get mixed messages and it makes them confused. Something I actually read about over the weekend was um, how you see like kind of teen moms that are really young and they know they shouldn't be having a baby. They have no job. They've always had a really bad life. Um, You know, they're in a bad position, but they end up having a baby anyways, just because, you know, their home life was really bad. They've always had like really fractal relationships and nothing really like solid. And so they want to have a baby it's almost like a trauma response just so it, that way they have something that like can't leave them, can't leave their life and needs them. Right, and that parent believes that that baby's going to take care of them, and they, they have a very skewed perspective about what their role is in that relationship. Right, kind of like how people say, like, you know, my baby saved me or whatever it is, or, you know, that'll fix all their problems. Yes, and that, of course, doesn't work. Rarely right. works. Their child ends up being their like biggest nightmare. Their confidant or a friend, or they see them as that as opposed to somebody that they're supposed to be 
providing yes. examples yeah. for. Or they just abandoned them completely because they realized it was more work than they intended. Yes. It's, I mean, they, they, there's all kinds of negative responses that um, unprepared mothers can have towards their babies and some very toxic relationship dynamics that can develop early on. So uh, obviously, that, you know, that all gets back to the having not developed prop- appropriate or what would be, I guess, considered normal empathy for others. Right. And when you don't have the normal empathy for others, that can obviously lead to criminalistic behavior. Yes. Okay. Now, I want to s- switch gears just a little bit. Um, how do socioeconomic factors play into all of this? Well, so I was also, you say with the empathy and everything, so are you saying like a lack of empathy with just serial killers? Because in the, in the term of criminal mind, I wouldn't say that all criminals lack empathy. Well, I think what she was saying was, if you look at what can be something that develops or turns into the criminal mind, what can lead to the criminal mind is if they've had experienced a lack of empathy in their early development. Well, I'm speaking about a specific type of person, not necessarily all criminals. That's just one subset. And it's actually, fortunately, probably the least frequently seen. Okay. 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 So when we're talking about serial killers, people who can't um, show empathy towards other people, they probably came more from that way. But there's a lot of people who had who had a good attachment with their sure. parents. It wasn't sure. necessarily the best. Their parents weren't necessarily doing the best job they could have, but sure. they but they will develop criminal behaviors, and it's not because of the attachment per se. Okay. And some of those people will feel guilt and remorse for what they're doing, too, because they have the ability to have empathy. Right. So okay. with that, would it be easier for narcissists to become, you know, sort of like a sociopath or even a serial killer just because of that lack of empathy and that lack of ability to... Feel empathy. Narcissism is a is kind of a different factor, and there's so many factors that come together when we're talking about psychopathy, for example. But narcissism is very low self esteem that develops, and that can come out from that parent child relationship too. Like my parents never cared about me; they were they didn't come to any of my games; they didn't care that I was doing these good things. And so narcissism, which we all can see from you know, is actually an overcompensation of that low self esteem. And so, it, but it is a factor that uh, allows the person to feel better when they do these things and not feel guilty about their right. poor choices. Would that include talking about having a burden for how smart you are? It could happen oh, like that. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Narcissism down here, for sure. <laughs> narcissism can, a little bit of narcissism can compel you to do good things yes. and achieve, so That's it's right. not terrible. Thank you, Dr. Cole. You can become Thank an you. attorney. That's right. I think all lawyers are a little... Uh, on that on that side of the coin so you know you, you have these different components that can sort of start um, entering your life at childhood just many times and certainly what we see in our clients is there's also um, you know socioeconomically um, financially these are families are also the coming from a hard spot too absolutely how does that all play into into this mix well just by nature of not having resources a lot of families will um, engage in behaviors that they wouldn't necessarily have already done. Like, uh, and criminalized behaviors can get taught down the down the line. For example, stealing to feed your right. kids or right. um, to have enough in your family. And that, and kids witness that and it's modeled to them and it's justified to them. That the, that the ends justify the means. Yes. And so there's a lot of criminalized behavior that are simply just taught to the kids and, um, and it's permitted or encouraged. Um, even stealing from the store and those kinds of things. Well, I mean, I think that's a fine line where the end justifies the means because, I mean, there's plenty of situations and, like, historical where, you know, you're faced with that tough choice. I mean, like, example, dropping the bombs in World War II, you know, that was terrible, but 
more people could have died in the end. So, you know, the end kind of justified the means in a sense. But it's where do you find like what develops the ability to like rationally think through that and not just be like gung ho about it? Do you mean what keeps some people from developing more of a criminalized mindset than other people in that yeah. situation? That's a great question, isn't it? And uh, and we in psychology we are continually looking for factors that separate out. Well, who's the person that grew up in this experience and didn't develop into this criminal? Sure, you know. And so it's a uh, some people are more resistant or able to think more clearly. Intelligence is one of those factors, right? The ability to um, see things from an objective perspective and realize when other people aren't, when there's more information, or to recognize something is more complicated than simple. Um, that's a that's a talent. That's an ability. Um, when people are telling you something, um, to be able to look at it in a critical way is something that is a resource for that person. What also seems to be with psychology is that it, it seems like in the lens of like, you know, psychology that criminality is viewed as kind of rigid when I feel like in reality it's more fluid. You know, if you're, say, if you've never committed a crime in your life, but then you're in a, you're in a frat house and you're fucking shit up and throwing parties that you shouldn't and, you know, you see these men that like rape women or whatever, that maybe they wouldn't have done so if they weren't in that situation or if they were raised to respect women a little bit more. Um, or even say like someone who commits crimes like in their teens, like just, you know, car hopping or stealing, but then they grow up and they kind of mature. So do you think there's a maturity level that kind of influences that as well? Or is it just like certain standing? Like say you've never committed a crime, but now you're 40 and you're broke. I mean, like obviously Breaking Bad isn't real life, but I mean, if it was a representation of real life, you know, what if you're 40, you've never committed a crime, but now you decide that, you know, you have to pay for say X or Y or Z. That's where like the socioeconomic situations kind of tie into criminality as well, wouldn't it? Well, there is a lot there. Um, that we could talk about. And one, you know, uh, there's so much that can play into it, um, especially with all the emerging research about adolescent brain development. So kids have um, a lesser ability to perceive what's going to happen next, to foresee um, the outcomes of their behavior, the consequences of their actions. And as people mature and, you know, get older, their brains stop developing the executive functioning uh, starts stops growing per se and so they're able to see as much as they're going to but when you're in your 20s up until the age of 25 you know you're still not perceiving everything that you're going to see and so your ability to make good decisions is impaired as compared to like a person who's older Um, you're also less you're engaging in less risk-taking behaviors you're not going to those frat parties where people are making bad choices. Um, peer influence is a big deal when you're in your 20s. You're less um, likely to fall into peer, peer behavior when you're older, but group norms are still a function too. Like you'll see um, a lot of social psychology addresses, you know, whether a person would engage in this criminal behavior if everybody around them wasn't like in a riot situation. Right, right. So there's a lot of factors. That's kind of like herd mentality though, right? Yes. Well, that tr- that's a good transition to the into my next question. And, and you know, as a an attorney in, in a law firm, we do a lot of criminal cases. There is something that is unique to the young male brain. Uh, I mean, they make up a an ordinate amount of our clients per a capita. A lot. Uh, if you look at the makeup of our clients, the young male shouldn't make up eighty percent. Uh, but they, they probably do. Right. Um, why is that? Well, they're engaging in a lot of risk-taking behaviors, that's for certain. Um, and there's a lot of influences uh, out there. One of the problems I see a lot with the clients is they don't have a strong 
positive male role models. And so they tend to engage in behaviors with other kids engaging in delinquent behaviors. So we t- touched a little bit, scratched the surface a little bit on the the, the young male. Um, and you mentioned the role models. I mean, there, that's something we definitely see here all the time is, um, I would say, I, I was talking to one of, one of my old clients who's really, really turned his life around and doing awesome now. And we were talking a little bit about, he's doing all these like, um, he's doing all these trainings on, on and sort of life coach stuff he's, he's doing as a profession now and being real successful at it. And I mentioned to him, I said, I said, I, I would guess somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of the male clients we have, uh, 80% of them uh, had never even met their father or their father was not a significant part of their life in any way. Absolutely. What's, what's the, what's the tie in there? So once boys hit adolescence, it becomes very important for them to have somebody to model themselves after. And so without a, a, a father figure in place that's able to provide a good modeling experience for them, a lot of boys will gravitate towards the next best thing, which might be the a kid friend. next door right. or the kid guy in the gang or, you know, somebody else who takes an interest in them who may not pro- be able to provide, um, you know, good ethical kind of training about what it means to be a man and how to take responsibility and to do good things for the community. Uh, we also have a huge problem with mass incarceration of African-American men in this country. Sure. Uh, disproportionate amounts. And so a lot of these kids in the inner city in particular uh, or African-American families, they have not no uh, options in the community for mentoring. Now, that in Indianapolis, that's improved quite a bit with a lot of mentoring agencies that have been added to be able to provide that, but it still is a deficit for a lot of kids who, you know, mom works one or two jobs and they don't have um, a positive dad there. Their dad might be incarcerated or something and they don't have anybody to learn those skills from. And so a lot of kids will gravitate towards the next best thing, which is some other teenager who's who's um, guiding them towards adulthood. Who may also have their own issues. I think uh, or to, another criminalized man. To kind of build on that too, it's not only just, I would say, men without fathers or men without mothers. Um, I think it's also like something in them I feel like has to be instilled early where like they just want better for themselves. And some of them don't. Some of them, you know, are really depressed and they don't care to live for tomorrow, so they do whatever. But I don't know if you guys know about this, but this uh, R&B artist, his name was P&B Rock, he was at a Roscoe's in South Los Angeles, uh, I think it was last week or the week prior, and he was robbed, shot, and killed, and they just found the people that did it, and he, you know, he, he walks around with a bunch of chains and jewelry on, um, and a guy and his father, 17-year-old kid and his father, were in the parking lot, they had just grabbed food, they saw P&B Rock walk in with all his jewelry, so they went back, got a gun, father pulled up. Kid went in there to try and rob him. PNB wouldn't give it up, so he shot him a bunch of times, took a bunch of his chains and jewelry, and then the father acted as a getaway driver. Mm-hmm. So despite having a father, um, that's still, like, a really bad role model. I mean, that's just sickening to hear, and despite being the trigger man, I feel like the father should definitely get at least the same sentence um, in terms of severity of a punishment. Um, but I feel like that's also kind of like a familial, you know, kind of domino effect where that father probably didn't have a very good upbringing or maybe he had no father or maybe his father was the same way. And it's kind of like a domino effect where even after generations, you still kind of see the same things, if not worse, happening. Absolutely. And that happens all the time. You know, you have uh, people who grow up and they're like, they see their own upbringing as either too 
painful, and so they do the opposite, which is usually not helpful either. So you either have authoritarian parenting on one side or permissive parenting on the other side. Sure. So I'm not going to be like my dad was. I'm not going to beat the crap out of my son, and then and so then they don't do any parenting at all. They're far on the left side, and they're they're the child's friend, and they're permissive. And so you have this flip flopping back and forth about how you look back at your own childhood and decide to raise your own kids, but it's not necessarily the healthy way of going about it. How would uh, how could parents like? kind of prevent that pendulum from swinging from one extreme to the other? How, what are like good ways to kind of keep it in the middle? Well, I think people have good intentions towards parenting. I don't think anybody really has children to, to mess them up. Right. It's just that overcompensation that always seems to be an issue. Right. I wish more people would just voluntarily take parenting classes or read some books on parenting and, and realize that their experience, just because they lived through it, doesn't mean that they were raised okay. Because a lot of people will come and say, my parents raised me just fine. And they got out the belt and they whooped me every time I did this or grandma got out the switch. And just because that happened and you lived through it doesn't mean it wasn't traumatic to you and it didn't bear some scars in your soul. I think it's also sort of a pride thing because, you know, you, you'll see especially like a lot of parents say, like, don't don't tell me how to punish my kids or how to be a parent. When in reality, like hardly anybody knows how to be a parent to a T. A lot right. of people are especially just thrown into that life. Yeah, I wish kids were born with uh, like a, a book, a manual to teach you how to be a good parent. <laughs> yes. right from the get go. Unfortunately, a, a lot of people don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to be a good parent and understanding sure. the appropriate dynamics. They just kind of wing it and hope for the best. Right, right. One of the things we see frequently also is what is commonly called a dual diagnosis uh, involving criminality and substance abuse. Yes. Um, explain a little bit about, you know, is it is it the substance abuse that leads to the criminality? Is it the criminality that leads to the substance abuse? What's the psychology behind the, the connection between those two? Oh, that's an excellent question because it, it depends on the person to be honest, because substance abuse can make you more susceptible to act out and do crimes. It lowers your threshold for, you know, making those kinds of choices. Uh, And it also, if you develop a problem, it can lead you to act out and uh, do criminal things to get money to support your substance use and vice versa. So you can also just be a criminal and engaging in criminal behaviors and substance abuse is just a side project for you. It's not really the thing that's driving you. But um, people who are likely to engage in substance use are likely to also forego other uh, community laws uh, and engage in behaviors that can get them in trouble. And is there some, I mean, I, I assume if you're you're mentally ill, that can lead to you, you getting into substance use thinking that's making things better yes. and vice versa. You can be, uh, get yourself first involved in substance abuse and that leads you into sort of this area of despair that leads to mental health issues. Right. And, you know, it's easier to get substances and um, some weed on the street than it is to get in to see a therapist. That's a fact. Right? And right. it's also cheaper. Yeah, some of our clients wait eight months. Oh, my gosh. The waiting list for getting into people, see people in Indianapolis is through the roof right now, and it's really difficult for people to get services. But, you know, even people who could get it, who have Medicaid or could get get to see somebody, right. you know, the, the barriers of the bureaucracy of, you know, working through their Medicaid sure. or ch- those challenges is hard enough for a person who doesn't have mental health issues. Sure. Try being somebody who's psychotic and trying to get in to get a med- back on medication. You can understand why there's so many people who are homeless and yeah. psychotic. So, so with that particular issue, um, other than just dumping more resources, it, what, what's, I mean, what, what is, if you could take somebody that's had, let's say, had a dual diagnosis, they're suffering from an addiction, they're um, suffering some, some some sort of mental illness, whether it's bipolar disorder, um, major depression disorder, 
Um, if you could take that person, snatch them out of the air, and do whatever you could without any limitation on resources, what would be the best path? What, what would what would be the most likely thing to help them to get on track? Well, with substance abuse, it's it's difficult because a lot of people don't believe they have a problem, and so they have to like hit rock bottom before they're willing to recognize that. But ideally, there would be enough treatment programs to be able to wrap resources around them. Sure. Uh, it's really hard to get people into substance abuse treatment programs because there's so much need and there's not enough beds. Uh, there's also a lot, not, not enough providers providing that kind of treatment. And so evidence-based um, agencies providing this kind of resource would be amazing, like enough rehab facilities and you know step-down programs. But, you know, so a lot of times people get incarcerated because, you know, they uh, got kicked out of their program, their treatment program, where they didn't go or they tested positive one time. And so instead we incarcerate them, and that's not really solving the problem. It's not really teaching them what they need to do. Now, there has been a push within the Department of Corrections to try to, uh, you know, provide the services they need within the, in the prison system, but they're overburdened there as well. And sometimes they don't save, they save those resources for the people who are just about to be released to right. the community, and they're not spending their the entirety of their sentence working on anything like that. And is that the best environment for them to get help? No, and then you're surrounding them with a lot of other criminals who have similar beliefs, yeah. beliefs that are difficult to dismantle. Yeah, and people telling you that what you did wasn't wrong or it's okay. or Right. I or mean, everybody it. has the same mindset, that criminalized mindset, which sure. is difficult to, yeah, to tear sure. apart. What about in terms of the, 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 the mental health side of it? Um, where are we? Where are we falling short most often? Is it the access to care? Is it the type of care? Over reliance on medication? Under reliance on medication? I think a lot of the, there's a lot of factors. Um, one of them is just there's not enough providers for the people, uh, and a lot of times there's barriers to access just in general with insurance. Like insurance just simply is not reimbursing providers at the rate of which that is a livable rate to pay back their student loans to go to grad school. <laughs> we were just talking about that on the way over here. Sure. You know, when do you pay off those student loans after going to, right. to get your doctorate in psychology? So, you know, a lot of people choose not to provide care to people who are um, in most need of that and they won't take Medicaid. And so that limits resources more. So there's a lot of people out there, the one, especially the ones who are, are the most need, that they just don't have access at all because there's not enough providers or there's not people who are willing to work with the population. So there's that as well. Like who wants to work with a, a criminalized population or a, a population where going to court might be a possibility? I have a question about that too. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I've seen a lot, and we'll talk about this probably in a little while, with people that are facing sex offenses or, yes. or in the midst of committing criminal acts and they know that it's tied to mental health, but they're afraid to go get help because if they talk to you and, and someone's currently in danger, you have to disclose, right? Right. So what's the workaround or is there a workaround you can think of for, let's say somebody is currently abusing a child or harming a child and they know that it's tied to mental health or past uh, sexual abuse themselves, but they're afraid to go tell somebody because in, by telling somebody they're getting themselves in trouble. You see the circle? Yes. What is the fix? There's not necessarily a fix because right now everybody's a mandated reporter, right. and uh, and it makes it very difficult when somebody who is a pedophile or has pedophilia as a problem wants to come into treatment because you are mandated to report if you know that sure. they've molested a child. Um, some providers will uh, not ask for names in the past, you know, or they will ask if it's been reported, or they will help that person to report in some way, or we talk to their attorney, or like sure. there's some kind of discussion. 
it's a little easier when they're juveniles and they're disclosing this because you know it's going to be handled in juvenile court and that's part of the process. But it's when always it's an hard. Adult, it's very difficult. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. It's always hard because usually we're catching this after it's already been done. Right. So we have so many clients that we send your way and send uh, to other people that by that point they've already committed the act and the problem's already done and now they're going to be incarcerated for it. And it doesn't seem like there is a really good avenue for for people to go seek help and get out of the problem that they're in because they're afraid. There's a there's a federal judge, uh, Judge Barker, um, and, and she would bring this up all the time. She'd say, you know, we, we got to be careful how harsh we are because a lot of these people couldn't get help to begin with. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously they can. They can go seek help and, and try to be generic about the problem that they're having. But sometimes there's an active problem that needs active help, but people won't go do it because they're afraid of the reprisal of getting arrested or getting in trouble for it. Absolutely. I just don't know. I, maybe that's just a rhetorical statement. I just don't know what the answer is because we have so many clients suffering from mental health that suffer from pedophilia or sex offense-related uh, issues. And, and it's like every time I talk to them in my office, they're like, I just wish I could have gotten help for this in the past. Right. right? I and mean, you don't blame them for not wanting to come forward if they are right. going to get arrested the minute they walk in the office. Yeah. And I've had clients who were referred from other people and told to go go confess at the police department by the therapist. Oh, my. So they walk into the police department <laughs> and have an open confession. Sure. So is it better for them to just come in and just be generic? Is that the, is that the fix, not to talk about who specifically? Or do you push when you're sitting in an office with someone to find out, is there actually somebody in danger? What's well? The first thing you have to do is really just lay out the the, the confidentiality issues, you know, sure. in, in these circumstances, and this is what would have to be reported. And if you know there's a victim, then I'd have to report that. It's just to lay it all on the line, and then start working from a more general perspective. Right. But yes, there you have to have some kind of discussion about that because otherwise you're setting the person up. Yeah, yeah, that's what they're afraid of. I think. Right. Well, this this is a perfect transition into our next topic. I want to hit on some of the specific uh, diagnoses that I think are, are most commonly see tied to um, mental health, uh, or I'm sorry, criminal behavior, um, mental health diagnoses that are tied to criminal behavior. Um, before we discuss the first one, which will be sociopath, we'll play a, a little clip from a well-known uh, sociopath. What would you do with the, with the dead animals, Jeff? Take them back in the woods? Uh skin them sometimes, uh, slit them, slit them all the way open, uh, look at the organs, feel them. Can you describe what no, you were thinking? No, I, I, was, I was, it was just mystifying to me how, how the insides of the animal looked. Uh, there was a sort of ex, uh, general excitement for me. I don't know why. It was, a, it was exciting to see. That's a little clip from an uh, interview with Jeffrey Dahmer, who's obviously making a lot of uh, or, or a hot topic again due to a current Netflix um, a series or short series that's been put out about him. But what, psychologically, what, what is or what's the definition of a sociopath? Um, well, there's a lot of discussion about exactly what that entails, but basically a person who is incapable of feeling emotions for other people, uh, they are um, willing to um, violate the, the limits of other people, the boundaries of other people to, for their own pleasure. Um, they don't see, uh, they don't, they're not able to see the other person as having feelings or emotions or they don't care. Um, they are usually narcissistic. Um, 
They're, uh, they're often engaging in multiple crimes um, of different sorts, and it, it becomes a game of how to get away with more and engaging in a lot of risk-taking behaviors. Okay. Um, I was thinking back through my career, back when I was a prosecutor, that what, you know, had I ever dealt with whom somebody I thought was truly a sociopath? I had a, uh, a guy I was prosecuting one time that uh, was a week out from the DOC on a rape, uh, having raped a woman violently, and um, came across a completely innocent um, stranger, um, had a small disagreement with her about, he, he was smoking marijuana on her porch at a department complex, and she asked him basically to move along. And he followed her into her apartment and took a hammer and hit her in the claw, with the claw side of the hammer a hundred times, was their estimate. The damage was so brutal to her brain, it was hard to say for sure. But hit her a hundred times with the claw side of a hammer and just killed her. He just had a hammer in his hand? The hammer was in her apartment. He picked it up, out of, used her own hammer, and hit her over 100 times in the claw side of a hammer. I mean, that's a special kind of something, isn't it? Well, it sounds either psychotic or intentional to go back to prison, to be honest. But, okay. uh, yeah, that, that level of rage is very over the top for the situation. Um, so it, it does make you question the person's mental stability just in general. And a lot of times people are not on, on their medication and they have delusions about the person in particular or their rage about they're projecting that rage on that person that is from a past trauma that they can't manage. Maybe that person triggered that person's belief that they are not important or that they should, you know, they're re being rejected and, so, and it just triggered something else. I mean, it's hard to say what's going on in their brain sometimes. One of the other areas we, we see sometimes and hear about uh, is kleptomania. Mm -hmm. what, what, what's kleptomania in the psychology world? Uh, it's, it's like a form of obsessive compulsive disorder where the person has to constantly steal something. They become obsessed with it, they steal it, and then they immediately either feel remorse or they have to get rid of it. And so it becomes a problem because they accrue a lot of different items and keep getting themselves arrested. But it's like obsessive compulsive disorder. It's really hard to stop doing that. And it isn't even necessarily somebody that needs to steal. I mean, financially, no, it there's no... It can be no... completely random. It could be, I'm going to steal Devin's pen, and I've been obsessed about it this entire time, and I'm going to take it before I walk out of the room. <laughs> um, we touched a little bit on this on this next topic, pedophilia. Obviously, that's one you hear about in the news a lot. Um, what's the what's the psychology or the definition of what makes somebody a, a, a pedophilia? Well, this is a really interesting topic because there's so many ways that somebody can become get interested in that. Um, we were I was just talking with my students not too long ago about the fact that a lot of people will fall down the rabbit hole of the internet, and they weren't necessarily interested in kids in the beginning, but because they became overstimulated with sex on the internet and they went down that rabbit hole of child pornography, then suddenly they started developing an interest in children. When sure. you say overstimulated, do you think it's because they didn't know that they were predisposed to liking child porn and then they saw it and realized they liked it or they got tired of seeing like normal porn? Well, I think for at some point, normal porn doesn't do it. And so you start to ramp it up and then you look at more um, exotic types of pornography or more stimulating types of pornography and eventually you get to the forbidden pedophilia pornography and then that becomes a real problem because that is exciting to them finally but that wasn't how they started going down that rabbit hole so when people say pornography isn't damaging it it, it is damaging to people uh, they do attenuate to it they get used to it and they need to look at something more severe or more exciting to be able to um you know you probably would come up with a way to talk about that. Definitely. Is there a is there a danger of kids having access to it at a younger Absolutely. age? Absolutely, and the earlier they see it, the more problematic it can be. Um, and you do see um, 
you do see pedophilia also spring out from traumatic childhood. Uh, and most of the times people people have been sexually abused of sure. some sort. That's uh, what I've seen. And but but not necessarily. Sure. So I, I just want to make that clear. And a lot of times another factor is autism, which also plays a role. And it also probably plays a role in people that we assume are pet, um are um, psychopathic, but maybe aren't psychopathic because they too can sometimes have a problem with uh, empathy towards other people. But people who are on the autism spectrum have a hard time understanding social rules about sex. And so sometimes uh, you'll have this the 23-year-old who's having sex with the 14-year-old and doesn't right. understand why that's not consent right? because they don't really understand what another per- another person can give consent and their developmental immaturity. Does that call into question competency or no? Uh, not competency as we know it in the courtroom because right. competency in the courtroom has more to do with understanding the rules of right. the court and the process, but understanding that other people can't don't think the same way you do and that they can't children can't give consent or it hasn't been taught to them about that, it becomes a problem because they don't think they're doing anything wrong. So it calls into question intent. Right. So not necessarily rises to the level of insanity, but right. could just be a, a question of intent. Right, or they just see it as a rule like any other rule, like you're not supposed to speed. They don't think that, they don't understand the severity and the consequences right. of having sex with a 14-year-old versus just speeding and getting a ticket. Brad speeds a lot. I've heard that. Right. He's got a heavy I heavy have a little foot. bit of a lead foot, I'm going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about, well, I think one of the one of the other areas where I think we see um, tied to criminalistic behavior, at least that's what you see in the media, and I think we see it some in our, our practice, too, is schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. How does that, what's, what is schizophrenia? How can that lead to criminalistic behavior? Yeah, schizophrenia is uh, a, psych- it's a psychotic disorder. It's one of uh, several dis- diagnoses you can have, that, but it's probably the most severe one apart from schizoaffective disorder, which is schizophrenia with, like, bipolar disorder. So uh, schizophrenia is a clear break from reality. It usually happens in your early 20s, college years, but it can happen later too. I've done a lot of research on that and it can actually happen later. I mean, you guys are not immune necessarily uh, to have your first psychotic break. Brad's immune. (laughs) When you start to, you can either have hallucinations like auditory hallucinations or visual hallucinations or delusions where you believe that uh, government conspiracies, uh, oh, unfortunately, yeah. social media has really added to that by sure. creating all kinds of craziness that you can believe that things are sure. true when they're not. Uh, and that paranoia that people are after you can develop. And so when you have that break from reality, anything goes, you know, you can come up with all kinds of ideas. Sure. I've definitely had that. Definitely had clients that have had that. Not me. Oh, personally. I thought you were talking about yourself. Not me. I'm not coming out right now. Okay. No. Well, we can and, talk about that later. Yeah, we can talk about and that they later. May be, may be, they may be reacting in an illegal way to what would even potentially be a legal way if what they were perceiving right. to be true to them is, was accurate. Right. They might see themselves as engaging in ethical behavior given their situation yes. because their voices are telling them that this is true. Like they might be hurt somebody because they think that that person's a terrorist, for example. Or yes. Something. I've had people come in and say that they, they believe the government implanted cameras behind their eyes. Right. And they're watching them. Right, I mean, that's and hard. they say it completely sincerely. Yeah. They really believe that. Yeah, I just like yes, yeah, that's terrible. That's all. Yeah, you see, I here's Doctor Cole's card. Why sometimes <laughs> even while we're talking to him, they'll think there's somebody. Yeah, it, somehow watching. Like they the can't room. tell you that we got to close the blinds. Yeah, and it's 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 a real trick bag because if you try to talk to them about getting help, they think that you're not believing the, them. Yeah, you're part you're, of the you're conspiracy. Out to get them or, or yeah. yeah, not believing. It's very very difficult. Yeah. So I want to spend the last few minutes that we have. You touched a little bit on incarceration. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's ultimately 
there's some public safety things where people have to be incarcerated just for the safety of public. But in terms of fixing a lot of these issues, that's, I mean, that's not the place, is it? No, I mean, we, we, they've tried, I mean, Department of Corrections and like the, some of the facilities have tried to come up with ways to treat people and rehabilitate them, but there's just too much need and not enough services and it's difficult to keep up. There's, uh, we could do a much better job at the community level if we could come up with programs that were um, sponsored and paid for that we could like actually put people through and, and sure. keep them safe on the outsides. And I think that there have been some novel approaches to, to doing that in different communities with different populations. But it takes a lot of creativity. It takes, you know, grants and people working towards making those things happen. And I, I think that people just don't care. I mean, they they, right. they want to lock these people up and throw away the key, but they don't understand that the cost that it really plays on and, society. Until it's their loved one that's right. going through exactly. it. What's uh, your professional opinion, and Dr. Cole, I had, what's the top two things uh, if you could make society help uh, make this criminal behavior? Uh, what, what could we do? What are the top two things that you know, a regular person just living their life could do differently that might help in this arena? Well, I do think that the, the positive thing is that there is a destigmatization destigmatization process about mental health in general that's come out in the recent yes. last year or two, which has been really helpful. I think that we need to like scale that back to everyone and <laughs> and stop teasing each other for being mentally ill, even sure. in this room, right? <laughs> uh, and, and being able to make those resources readily available. Um, I think that there has to be a much greater push towards prevention sure. and helping uh, people who... Uh, are, have less socioeconomic resources to be able to access the mental health um, uh, opportunities that people who have more money do. I mean, it's, it's clearly there. That's a huge problem in this country. Um, I also think that there has to be, you know, more organization within the field of psychology and other professions to be able to make these things happen because I don't think that we're the best advocates for ourselves in pushing what people need. Uh, we also need a lot more education about how to help people uh, uh, who are who have socioeconomic problems and um, to provide resources to wrap around them because a lot of people just want to go to into the field to, you know, have a comfortable existence working with, you know, sure. kids that have minor problems or adults who have minor life problems and not really want to work with the difficult kind of people. Yeah. I mean, in, in my time doing criminal law, the, you know, the, somebody that's had a, a really rough background or, or especially somebody that's going through an addiction, it's, it's months long process. It's not mm -hmm. something you fix with a one time week long inpatient stay or uh, 72 hours at uh, the crisis center to deal with a mental health problem. I mean, this is something that takes months and months. Yeah, trauma is hard to work with too. I mean, trauma is something that you you as a provider can re-experience in talking about these things. Working with like, for example, sex offenders and hearing about right. their childhood trauma and all the stuff that they've gone through, it can really take a toll on the person. And so it's no surprise really that there aren't enough therapists and psychologists <laughs> who want to work with this population. I mean, who wants to do that? How many? How often do I hear that? Oh, why do you want to do that? That sounds terrible. Yes. But you have to develop a thicker skin and you have to develop some yep. resiliency to be able to work with the population. And um, and I unfortunately, I just don't think that there's enough uh, people out there who make it through. Like even if you're exposed to that in your sure. training, you're like, ooh, I don't wanna do I that. I don't wanna do that. There's yeah. easier ways to make money yeah. than do that. Yeah, for sure. Well, Dr. Coley, we are out of time for today. We really appreciate you joining us on our show. Dr. Coley is a, uh, a 
PhD psychologist here in Indianapolis that does private practice. And uh, we appreciate her joining our podcast today and uh, giving us some insight to 